argument. Would you turn to page 15 of your notes, please? I'm going to take the two sessions this morning, and then Eileen's going to take the afternoon to, to teach on impartation so that we can get the full benefit out of tomorrow morning, okay? So I've just got two sessions and a, a lot of material. <laughs> and, and what's worse is once we start praying for the nations, I'm so totally undone. <laughs> I just feel I want to weep, weep for the nation. Because I just feel God's heart, and I'm sure many of you do. And these prayers are not hitting the ceiling. They're, they're, they're having mighty and powerful effects in the spirit realm. And we're going to see an enormous harvest to our prayers. And I could have gone and praying for France, I think, the rest of the day. And <coughs> it's that same spirit which is so polluting Canada right now, particularly Eastern Canada. And that's going to break. And, and the Dalai Lama is coming to Toronto soon, and he's going to try and pollute the waterways of the Great Lakes and all the waterways of America with all kinds of powerful demons. And there's a few people aware of this and are fighting it, but the vast majority of the church doesn't even know what's going on. The, some great powerful Islamic spirits which the intercession in London has driven out. I won't go into the details, it would take too long, but they couldn't stay any longer because not because the spirits of the rising army of prayer in London, England, made it impossible for them to stay. So they just packed up camp and they're moving to Toronto. So I want you to understand that there's there's a, a there's a battle and there's a there's a conflict being joined right now. At the, at the same time, I believe, when God spoke to me, and he said to me in very strong terms, he said, he said, the time for Europe has come. And, and I know that every inch of it's going to be a battle, but it's going to be a victorious battle. It's going to be a fight, but it's going to be a good fight. Amen? What's a good fight? When you win. And it's going to be a fight of faith. So I just, I'm just all undone. But <laughs> I'd like you to go to, to page 15. And I want to continue on with uh, talking about this transfer, and we could spend literally hours and days on this, but I want to talk about Paul to Timothy and Paul to Titus. And I just want to read that Paul meets, turn to Acts chapter 16. Paul meets Timothy. There, and we're told that he was—he had a Jewish mother, he had a Greek father, and Timothy is then circumcised. And we won't go into that. I, I could spend an hour on that, but I won't. And he takes Timothy with him to Macedonia. And I want us perhaps to come really to Philippians chapter two, and look at what Paul has to say about Timothy. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19. And this chapter 2 is a wonderful chapter. It urges us to all kinds of incredible standards of, of life. Verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. Here comes this phrase again. You know what that means now, don't you? The one mind let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, look, I've, I've learned to become like Jesus in this attitude, and I want you to become like me, because I'm like Jesus in this attitude. It's a total different way of thinking, and it, it's, it puts to death, at a deep level, all that self-seeking. And we were looking yesterday at Jacob and how he had to face up to who he was. I'm just a cheat, I'm just a twisted person, but he says, well, now you recognize that and you let me put that to death, then you're going to become a prince 
with God and with men. Come down to, he says, just come down to Come down to verse 19, I think we will do now. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that they may also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I, ha I have no one like-minded. He's going back again to what he talked about in these early verses. In other words, he said, I've learned to be like Christ. And this is a brief description of being Christ-like in my attitude. And he said, I'm urging you to be the same. And now, in verse 19, <laughs> a, I've got a son who has, has got this attitude. For I have no one like-minded who sincerely cares for your state. Or, as it says in another translation, he has a genuine concern for your welfare. Now, the first concern of a pastor is that he has a genuine concern for the welfare of his people. Amen? I'm just going to clean my glasses because I've been crying all over them and I can't see. <laughs> oh, I've got such a passion for France and for all those West European nations. That's better. Okay. For I have no one like-minded who is two things, who has a genuine concern for your wealth. I'm going to use that translation. For all the others, and he's talking about a whole great gamut of leaders, for all the others seek their own and not the things which are of Christ. But you know this proven character, that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come shortly. So he says, now this guy's a real son. And the word that's used here, I'll just mention this, is a word, it's an intensified form of the word technon. And as you, I'm sure many of you know, in the Greek language there's a whole range of words, there's ten altogether, to describe the parent-child relationship from a baby in the womb, a baby at the breast, a little toddler running around, every phase of development is separated by different Greek words and it, there's a spiritual equivalent for every one of those different words. And the word that comes just before this word technon is the word paideon and we get our English word pediatrician, pediatrics comes from that word. And this describes a child that's old enough to be disciplined but has not yet learned fully to be disciplined. And the word Pideon comes from the verb paiduo, which means literally to strike once with the hand or with a blunt instrument for the purposes of discipline or correction. So in other words, God believes in smacking his kids, but not out of anger, not out of temper, but in a loving means of bringing them into line so they learn to obey, they learn to respect authority, and they learn to be obedient to their father. Amen? Now when you come to this word technon, particularly intensified form, it means that the son has now learned these principles and you don't have to smack him anymore. We're talking about a teenager between 13 or 14 up to the next word, which is the word quios, which is a mature son who's come to the age of 30. Now in that bracket there, we use this word technon. And it's someone who you don't need to smack anymore because he's learned the goodness and the benefits and the blessing of being obedient. He doesn't know everything. He's not experienced in everything. But, he's, but the moment you tell him something, he grabs it with both hands because it's such a privilege to him to be taught by his dad so that he can grow to ever-increasing maturity. Have you got the understanding here? So I'm not dealing with, with someone who's being naughty, who's doing wrong things, but, but we're dealing with someone who's learned the principle that there's great joy and benefit in being obedient. So you only got to tell him once. He says, thanks, Dad. I'm going to do that now because he'll make me a better man of God. Hello. Now that's the principle. Now the interesting thing is that the only people that Paul accepted as his spiritual sons were the people that had been through the process of being disciplined to the point of learning the principle of obedience. Whereas he says, well, I, I'm not going to take a lot of babies 
and you're still on milk and still living self-indulgent, selfish lives, he said, I can't have them as my sons. Now, here's a very important principle here. You understand what I'm saying? Because there is a place in the church for a broader concept of fathering where you, and of course that includes the mothering, and you'll find that the Apostle Paul, when he's founding a church, which is particularly referred to in the Thessalonican letter, he says, when I came to you, first of all, I came to you as a nursing mother. Verse 7 of chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians. But after a little while, he said, because you were good learners, I was able to take you off milk and put you on meat. And by verse 11, he says, I could now discipline you and I could exhort you and I could encourage you and I could admonish you as a father. Now, the Corinthian church had three years of Paul's input, but at the end of those three years, they were still babies still living on milk. They, all that he could do was to give them words of encouragement, words of blessing, because the moment he tried to bring discipline into their lives, to bring them to the full maturity of God, they spat the meat out and said, now we want milk. Don't start bringing those corrective words. Just tell me God loves me. Just tell me God blesses me. Just, call, just give me milk. Just give me milk. Just give me milk. I just want to know God loves me. Oh, I want to know God loves me. I want to know God. Yes, it's a great truth, but there's much more to it than that. He loves you enough to spank you. And Paul said, I never ever got you off milk onto meat, not even after three years of ministry. And the whole church of Corinth was a baby church that lived on milk, and actually, in the history of the church, it never ever did anything. But the church in Thessalonica, which had three weeks of Paul's ministry, but they took far more benefit from those three weeks than Corinth took from the three years. And so there's a fathering to churches as well as there's a fathering to individuals. And once they were bonded by the mothering, so yes, God does love you. Yes, he loves you even when you're naughty. Yes, he loves you when you do stupid things. Yes, yes, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. His mighty blood can wash away all that sin, however many times you mess up. Wonderful milk, but beloved, we've got to go beyond milk to meat. Until we become like him. But Paul says, I haven't got anybody else like Timothy. He said, he said he's got the same mind as Christ. He's just a young man, but he's so learned his lessons that here he is, a young man, and I'm not trying to get him to get up early for a quiet time. I'm not trying to get him trained to have a great time of, of intercession. He's got all these things built into him now. He just comes to a church, and he comes to the church to serve them as a servant. He's not coming with the wrong kind of perverted authority, although he's an apostolic young man. He's got a genuine concern for your welfare. And he doesn't seek his own. He seeks the things of Christ. And he's my beloved son. Amen? Now I could just, you, I, I haven't got time in these two sessions, but I want to suggest to you that you take the two letters to Timothy and, and just go through every, every phrase of it, really, and just, just learn the principles of this beautiful example of successful generational transmission of, of a son who's now going to grow up. We know that Timothy finally went to Ephesus and he was in Ephesus when the Apostle Paul went to jail. He took over the church in Ephesus. He took over the supervision of the seven churches of Asia, Asia and he was doing a mighty job until he was killed as a young man in the first persecution under Emperor Nero. So he didn't have a long life but it was a tremendous life. Amen? After he was taken out by that first, and there was a little bit of overlap, then the Apostle John came to the city of Ephesus and he took over the apostleship of that regional centre and of those, that region of churches. And God kept the Apostle John marvellously alive. Although he spent 14 years in jail, there were two terrible persecutions which he survived. And God kept him alive, as we looked at the other day, in order to teach him the deep, deep things of God so he could write them so that we can still be living off them today. So I want you, like me, to say, well, God, I want to be, be a father like Paul because there's no greater example in the New Testament. 
And if you read those, those pastoral letters to, and, and read the letters to the church at Thessalonica in particular, but you can read the one to Corinth, even when he's dealing with a difficult church, it's wonderful to see the way that he handles it. He makes a distinction between the churches that he gave birth to and the churches where he became an adopted father. But it's possible to be a father of churches as well as to be a father of men. And, and, and I don't think that he was a father of women because it would have been difficult. But the, the principle applies just as much between mothers in the church and daughters in the church as it does between fathers and sons. Amen? Now his final word, and, and, and I have not time to, I mean I thought I might have a whole day just to go through these two chapters, two books of Timothy, but it's not going to work. At the end of his ministry, if you come to 1 Timothy now, let's just touch on one or two things. Chapter 1, the six chapters, and you'll notice this as a pattern. Let me just mention this as a pattern. There's a pattern in all these great books. Take the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 1, you've got to get an, a real biblical revelation of the bigness and the glory of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, having seen who Jesus really is, then you've got to then understand what you are because of what he is and what he's accomplished on your behalf. Until you see who you are because of who he is, then you're not ready to be functionally a warrior in the purpose of forcefully advancing the kingdom. And then, it then starts to teach you how to fight. Now Ephesians does exactly the same thing. Chapter 1, it's the most amazing revelation of who Jesus is. And Paul says, I want you to see Jesus as big as the Bible really says he is. Ascended, glorified, he's got a name, and that name means in the sense of reputation and authority. He's got a name which is above every name. And having seen who Jesus is, now chapter 2, I want you to see who you are because of who he is. Then it goes on to talk about family, and it goes on to talk about many things, but finally, chapter 6 of Ephesians, it then takes us to war. Taking us to war is the last stage of a whole process of making us so so mature and developed in Christ that our warfare is effective. He doesn't want us to end up like Elijah or John the Baptist. Hello. He wants us not only to go to war, he wants us to come out the war victoriously, having defeated the enemy rather than being defeated by the enemy. And here again, Timothy there's six chapters, and it's only when you get to chapter six he starts talking about fighting the good fight of faith. It's the same process. And until you lay all these foundational things in first, you're not secure to be the, the victorious warrior that God wants you to be. And he's so proud of his son Timothy, because Timothy's, Timothy's qualified. He's a son. He's his beloved son. All right, let's move on now. Well, let's just stop in chapter 1. He writes to, and I love this verse, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Verse 3, as, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And so we could go on. He said, and let's now just come straight to chapter 6 because I've not time to dwell on the wonderful bit in between. He's about to hand over the baton to Timothy. He knows that he's in prison as he, and he's just come out of prison for a short period when he writes the first letter to Timothy. But it's only a few months reprieve and then he goes back into prison and then in that second letter of Timothy he knows now that he's about to be executed. It's not a big deal as far as he's concerned because he knows he's finished the race he's run the course he's completed all that God purposed for him to do now the whole future of the church depends upon a proper transfer to Timothy that's awesome isn't it maybe that's a bit over the top but certainly a, a section of God's purpose on earth is being vested in this young man Timothy 
it's certainly going to touch a nation. And he's handing over the baton and he's saying, Timothy, this is what I want you to do. There's three principles here, which, which are there in 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 15, really. First principle, which I'm not going to spend time on, is, is flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. In other words, be passionate about what you choose not to touch or have anything to do with and be passionate about what you're after. Amen? You don't just avoid sin, you flee youthful lusts. Amen? And on the other hand, you pursue certain things, which means that you run after them, and the, the idea of this Greek word is that you're running after a thief that's just stolen something from you, and you're going to get him, and you're going to get back from him what he's stolen from you. Now, you don't do that half-heartedly. Amen? Imagine that someone's just snatched your life savings, and if you grab him quick, you can get them back. If you don't grab them quick, he's going to run away with them. I tell you, you would run. You would pursue Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, or if you like, long-term endurance. Cheerful long-term endurance is perhaps the best word. Gentleness. Now come to, ch to, to, ch to verse 2. Fight the good fight of faith. That's principle number one. It's a good fight, it's a fight of faith. And the word fight is the word agonizomai, which is that we get our word agonize. It comes directly from this word, and it means to struggle with long-term perseverance. In other words, you've got to have the long-term view. The race we run is not a hundred-yard sprint, it's a marathon. The fight we fight is not a one-round contest, it's a 15-round contest. If you win the first round and get knocked out in the seventh round, you've lost the fight. So you've got to, you've got to persevere to the end. Amen? Okay, let's move on. Number, the second exhortation, which we've already talked about, is lay hold of, grab hold of, the eternal life to which you are also called, because that's where the faith comes from. And you've confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. Now here's the commandment. The commandment is to maintain a good confession. Was what you, like what's going to happen to some of you tomorrow morning? Maybe you've already got some very strong and powerful prophetic words upon your life already. God said things to you. You may have confessed things which God showed you in a beautiful time of intimacy with him. Now, what Paul is saying is, he says, Timothy, now hang on to those things. Maintain the good confession. And then he goes on to point to the, to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just spend a few minutes on this because it's very important. I went through a, a particular experience in my my walk with God, I've not time to talk about the detail, where what God had promised me uh, was snatched from me by a devilish counterattack, and I was desolate, I was devastated, I thought I'll never be able, ever be able to preach on faith again. I could have ended up like John the Baptist, totally disillusioned in prison for the rest of my life. And looking back over 40-something years of ministry, I know men who were once on fire for Jesus, and today they're out of the battle because they had a John the Baptist experience. One guy that I knew who was working mighty miracles and powerful cutting out of demons. Today, he's working for Amway as a salesman. And he said to me when I met him not so long ago, he said, you know, I haven't even got the faith to cast out a cold these days. I've lost everything. Now, that could have happened to me. I got near to it. But what saved me is I was sitting there in my desolation. This phrase hit me. Remember the good confession of Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate. And I suddenly saw what Paul was saying, because Paul was an eyewitness to these things. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He saw Jesus on trial before Caiaphas, and he saw Jesus on trial before Pontius Pilate. And you may remember 
back in Matthew when, when Jesus stood before Caiaphas and he ordered him. He said, I adjure you by the living God, tell me, are you the Christ? And if you want to literally translate the Greek in a good modern terminology, the best translation would be this Americanism. Jesus replied, you bet I am. That would be a good translation. It wasn't, no, thou hast said, or assuredly I say to you. That hasn't got the same punch to it. But here is Jesus, all his circumstances, his disciples have all run away, he's tied up like a chicken, they can do what they like, and they can kick him and mock him and spit upon him. Have you ever, ever seen anybody less like a king or less like the Christ? All his circumstances says, Jesus, you failed. And remember that the, that the humanity of Jesus had to live by faith like any other man. So Jesus was a man of faith from the moment he started to the moment he finished his glorious 33 and a half years of human life. He only knew who he was by faith and by what the Word said and by what the Spirit said. He had to fight the good fight of faith more than any other man. And as he stood there, he said, You bet I am. And he said, you're going to see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Man, that's not the time to say that, Jesus. <laughs> now, what do, they, oh, what do they do? Oh, we're very sorry. We didn't know who you are. Please forgive us. No, they, they, didn't, they, they, they mocked him. They spat upon him. You the Christ, don't make me laugh. <laughs> and then they dragged him away to Pontius Pilate. They... The, the soldiers roughed him up, it says in Scripture, that his face was so marred, his visage was so marred, his face was so battered, it was unrecognisable as a man. This popped, bloody mess of spit and blood in that puffed-up face, there were these two burning eyes. But here he is tied up with a mocking crown of thorns upon his head and his robe and the soldiers make, spitting and making fun of him. And Pilate says to him, well, are you a king? You get exactly the same reply. You bet I am. And it's not thou hast said, that's not it. You bet I am. And Paul was watching this. And he was pricked. And Pilate, this is the strange thing, as Pilate looked at that man and looked at those eyes, he knew that he was speaking the truth. But he didn't have the guts, and I don't blame him because it was a very difficult situation, but he didn't have the guts to just say, that man's speaking the truth and I'd rather die with him than live in compromise. That's what he should have said, but he couldn't say it. So when he came to the cross, he wrote on the cross, the king of the Jews, in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, he said, no, 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 don't put that. Say that he said he was. He said, what I've written, I've written. I know who this man is. His wife warned him with a dream, don't touch that righteous man, don't touch him. He's, he's, and, and, and he had all kinds of witnesses, but he couldn't bring himself to take that courageous act. When Jesus died, and at his own time, it says in John 10, verse 35, Jesus said, he said, no one takes my life from me, I have authority, I have Exousia. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. And so when, he, when he'd finished paying for sin and when it was, the debt was complete, he cried out from the cross, It's finished! And it was the cry of a, of a gladiator when he makes the killing thrust in the battle. Ah! Got him! It's finished! That was, it wasn't a cry of pain. It wasn't a cry of defeat. It was a cry of victory. It's finished. Sin's fully paid for. Jesus didn't pay for sin in the tomb. He had fully paid for sin before he died, or as he died. When sin was fully paid for, when the debt was complete, he cries this beautiful word, Telios, nothing to pay. The debt's cancelled. And then having completed the work on the cross, then he just bowed his head, dismissed his spirit, and died at the point of time that he chose. No one took his life from him. And the Roman centurion who was in charge of the execution, this hard-boiled, battle-scarred warrior who'd killed many men, seen many men die on crosses, he was, when he saw this man die, it was like nothing he'd ever seen in his life before. 
He'd never seen anybody before in charge of his own execution. And then he got on his knees and he said, truly, truly, this is the Son of God. Now, Paul, or as he was then called, the Pharisee Saul was watching all this and the pricks were going into his heart. And he was convinced and convicted, really he was converted by the witness of Jesus Christ. He went into a fury of reaction. The demons in him went crazy. He tore in a great rage to persecute the church. And then on the road to Damascus, Jesus says, he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you persecuted. You, you heard me give testimony before Caiaphas. You heard me give testimony before Pontius Pilate. Everything I said is true. I'm now risen from the dead. Why are you fighting me? And he just broke to pieces. Now, when he was stoned and left for dead, when he was in shipwreck, I don't know how many times, when he was beaten with the, the, the Roman whip five times and with rods three times, when again and again it seemed like the kingdom of God was never going to come, when the power of hell seemed to be so intense at times, Paul remembered the good confession of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, in those totally hopeless circumstances, those totally impossible situations by the natural eye, where he, when he said, you bet I am. <laughs> I'm, you bet I am. I'm the king. I'm the Christ. I've got everything under my authority. I'm, I'm ascending to a mighty throne where angels are going to serve me and I'm going to rule over all the, the regions of the earth and there's going to be total glorious victory. You bet I'm the king. You bet I'm the Christ. He said, now, Timothy, you're going to go through some tough spots, but remember, I told you the effect it had on me when I saw Jesus crucified and I heard, when I saw him tri on trial before Pilate, when I saw him on trial before Caiaphas. I tell you, when he spoke to me on that road to, to Damascus, he said, Timothy, I've told you all about this. Now, remember that good confession. Because it'll keep you through every moment of your ministry till the day in God's time he calls you home. And, and here was I sitting in my study in England with everything about my ministry fallen into ruins. It looked like the devil had won on every side and I thought I can never be able to preach on, on faith again. And that morning I got on my knees and I said, God forgive me for being a wimp. And I'm getting back into the fight. And I'm going to remember the good confession of Jesus Christ. And however bad it seems, however difficult it seems, however impossible it seems, I'm going to remember those glorious words of Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the King. And his kingdom's going to fill the whole earth. And his glory's going to cover every nation. And there's not a demon in hell that can stop it. Amen. Amen. Well, you can see there's a lot in these books. That one phrase, remember the good confession of Jesus Christ, it completely changed my life and set me on a road of, of what's the word I want, sort of incurable, relentless warfare. I'm not going to die in an old people's home. I'm going to die in battle. And I'm not going to die one minute before it's God's time, but I'm not afraid to die whenever that time happens to be. I'm going to complete what he's got for me to do. And Timothy was such a great son. Amen? Let's move on. Second Timothy, written a few months later, just before he's executed, it's full of practical exhortation. And I just want to pick on one verse in Second Timothy 2. And this is what he says. He says, Timothy... Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, you commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, he's talking about four generations here. There's me, 
there's you, you teach it to men who can teach it to other men. In other words, he says, look, Timothy, I want you to have a four-generational perspective of the truth that I've passed on to you. And if you keep this to yourself, then you've hindered the forceful advance of the kingdom. Timothy, I've poured my life into you as a father. You've received it so wonderfully as a son. Now, the riches that are deposited in you, make sure you find other men that you can father and make sure that they find other men whom they can father and then there's no stopping the forceful, powerful advance of the kingdom. But if this dies with you, then this generational accelerating advance of the kingdom is going to be hindered. Amen? All right, we better move on. We, in the next page, page 16, Paul talks to of Epaphras and Epaphroditus. He calls them fellow workers. He calls them fellow soldiers. He's got tremendous things to say about these precious brethren, but they, they don't come into the son's category. Paul's very selective about who he calls his son and who he doesn't call his son. Epaphras seems to have a special relationship with, with, with Colossae, and Epaphroditus seems to have a special relationship with Philippi. As I've already said to you just now, Paul was also a father to churches. Corinth, Ephesus, and Thessalonica were churches that he gave birth to, and he speaks very, very uh, strongly as a father to them. But other churches like Colossae, Laodicea, and Rome, to these, he's a, an adoptive father, and he does not have the same close relationship. If you go through Corinth, letter to the Thessalonians, you will find the word command comes many, many times. When he writes to the Romans, when he writes to uh, Colossi, when he writes to the other adoptive churches, he doesn't have the same father rights, and so he doesn't speak with the same authority. Do you understand that? So once you've given birth, to, if you've given birth to a whole network of churches, then you have a father authority in them for the rest of your life, even when you don't live there. If those churches deny your fatherhood, then they bring themselves into trouble. If they'll receive it, you can continue to be a blessing, even though you only write a letter occasionally or only visit once in a year. Hello? Let's move on. I could he writes to the Thessalonians, and then he writes such a strong letter to the Ephesians, and I'm just looking at the clock and thinking, I don't have time to go into that, but you read it for yourself. Perhaps we'll just come to Acts 20 just for a moment. Acts chapter 20. Come to verse 17. Paul leaves Ephesus, goes to Macedonia, and then in verse 17, he's on his way back to Jerusalem and to what's going to be his uh, arrest. And he knows this by prophetic utterance. He's not taken by surprise, he's, but he says, doesn't matter if, if I do have bonds, I've got to go and do the will of God. From 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. It's a small island just off that particular part of, uh, of that area used to be called Asia, it's now basically Turkey. And he called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia, or what we call Turkey today, what, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility. Now this is the man writing it. It's interesting how Paul writes the first five books of the Bible, and he says that Paul, I'm sorry, Moses writes the four, first five books of the Bible. Sorry. Okay, let me get that straight. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and Moses, the author, in those books tells us that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. <laughs> Have you noticed that? And here is Paul writing to him, you guys, you all know how humble I was among you. Now that jars with us because we've got wrong ideas of humility. Now, basically, I, humility, true biblical humility, is not self-effacedness. That's, that's 
what I call Uriah the Heap. If you ever read Charles Dickens, you know what I'm talking about. This ingratiating, oh, I'm just a humble man, when all the time you're manipulating to get your way. That's not humility. But the bottom line of humility is you deny yourself and seek first the will of God and the benefit of blessing in others. In other words, it's God first, others second, me last. Now that's, that's humility, and that kind of humility can be very, very strong in leadership when it's an issue of God's will. And you'll find that Moses, the meekest man on the face of the earth, he was a terror when God's will was crossed. Would you not agree with that? He wasn't afraid to be a strong leader on behalf of God, but he was never a strong leader on behalf of himself. Hello? So we need to comprehend true biblical humility because it's, it's a required quality of every leader. You know how humble I was among you. And then he goes on to describe serving the Lord with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept nothing back that was helpful but proclaimed it to you, taught you publicly and from house to house and so on. And so you... What I want you to notice is that Paul's main teaching method was the way he lived. Hello. If he couldn't live it, there was no point in teaching it. I remember this was said somewhere. I, I remember there was this man in a particular company that I was once uh, part of, and this guy was a bold witness for Jesus, but his life was a contradiction to his witness. And so this guy, who he was being harassed by this witness for Jesus, he, one day he said, young man, your life speaks so loudly that I can't hear a word that you say. Dr. Radhakrishnan, the one-time president of India, said this on one occasion. He said, you Christians, you make such extraordinary claims for yourselves, but you live such ordinary lives. Why should we listen to you? Amen? But Paul wasn't like that. He was what he said, and he said what he was. Okay, come down to verse 28. Therefore, well, come down to verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In three years, he'd been able to impart to them the whole counsel of God. It says elsewhere, I taught you everything that was profitable. Now, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able, that word able is the word dunamai, which is powerfully capable of building you up and giving you an, an inheritance among those who are, who are sanctified. And I have covered no one's silver, gold, or apparel. I wasn't after your money. I was after bringing you into the fullness of Christ. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Now that's Paul. And he produced those kind of sons. And that's Paul. And he produced those kinds of churches. He was a father to men. He was a father to churches. Let's just go on to the next thing. I'm going to just deal with this very quickly. Um, I've got a question here at the bottom of page 16. In Scripture, why is it so rare for a successful generational transfer to happen? To natural, first of all, to natural descendants. And if you go to page 17, there's a big chunk in the middle that shouldn't be there, and I apologize for that, but you can just try. God is saying what the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, I want this to be generations, four generations he mentions. But I'm just going to give you a list of some of the failures and why they failed. If you come to the bottom of page 17, then we've, we've mentioned this already. I'm not going to spend time on it. We go into more detail on page 11. Moses' sons, Gershom and Eliezer. And the, the main influence there seems to be a negative influence from their mother. Hello? 
So just take note of that. On the other hand, we saw that Jacob's inheritance was largely facilitated by an enthusiastic attitude by his mother. We saw that Timothy became what he was because of his great-grandmother and because of his great-grandmother, because of his great-mother. So, so the, 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 if you like, the inheritance can be facilitated by the mother or it can be lost because of the mother. So mothers have got a very important role to play here. It isn't just a dad's deal here. Although the final responsibility is laid upon the man. Amen? So what sort of mother are you and what influence are you putting upon your kids? That's a very good question. Every mother. I remember Eileen said this, and over the years that we had children at home, she pretty well withdrew from ministry. She gave herself 15 years, I've counted, where she just was around for her kids. She said, I want to bring up conquerors for Jesus. That was her passion. Now, without wanting to embarrass anybody, you just see Rachel here, you realize that her, her prayers and her years have been fully paid. Amen? So it wasn't just a, a dad, it was, a, it, was, it was mum who was a powerful, powerful force in their lives. Well, let's move on. And then we move on to the next thing, and that is Hophni and Phinehas, and this is due to weakness in the father, on the one hand, and lack of reverence on the part of the sons. But God has to speak powerfully to Eli for the fact that he let his son sin and there's scriptures there which you could read and they, were, they lived abominably and the reason is because he was just such a weak guy. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 3 just for a moment. See, some fathers are nice and benign but they're never confronting. Come to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 12. In that day, this is God speaking to little Samuel. Now, little Samuel is about to become the heir of what Eli's sons perhaps ought to have had. Because they disqualified themselves. It says in chapter 2, they didn't even know the Lord, it says there. And, and the sin of these young men was very great. It says, verse 12 of chapter 2, the sons of Eli were corrupt. They didn't know the Lord. Now come to chapter 3, verse 12. In that day, says God, I will perform against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I've told him that I will judge his house forever, listen, forever, for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Hello? He did not rebuke them, is another translation. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering. A man of God comes and prophesies, so it's not as if Eli was without warning, and he says in verse 34 of chapter 2, this shall be a sign to you, that's to Eli, that, that will come upon your two sons, upon Hophni and Phinehas, in the one day they shall die, both of them, and I shall raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart, what's in my mind. He's talking about Samuel. Now, I don't want that to happen to my sons, do you? Or to my daughters. So I say, well, Lord, I, I want to make sure, you know, I'm not, not just benign and you know, blessing them. I, I, I'm going I'm to be firm with them when I need to be. Joshua said, he said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. In other words, I'm going to decide my house is going to be a house of God, which means that my kids, whatever age they are, when they're living in my house, we're not going to have unhelpful television programs, we're not going to have unhelpful music, we're going to, this house is going to be a place where God rules and reigns, and I'm not allowing any dirty darkling to come in, and they're not going to have their room where they do what they want, they're going to, they, I have the right as a father to go in at any time and say, this has got to stop, this has got to change. And if they won't submit, and this has been painfully true for some of the pastors that I've been father to, and the sons walk out the house, it's better them to do that and let them to live in the house with a benign tolerance, hoping that one day something might touch them. We could spend some time on this, but, but there's a firmness and a, a passion that, that's got to be evidently in us, because if it doesn't matter to us, why should it matter to them? So in, in Moses' sons, it was the failure of the woman. In Eli's sons, it was the failure of the father. 
And this is an incredible thing, is that Samuel's sons go and do even worse than Eli's sons did. And that really blows my mind. I thought, Samuel, God came and spoke to you and told you why he was dispossessing Eli's house and giving it to you instead. Haven't you got the lesson yet? But it seems that Samuel was another Eli sort of person that floated around in his you know, fellowship with God and he and God and he was in his ministry and his prophetic ministry and he perhaps didn't even notice that he got kids. That was woman's work, that was a woman's job and it isn't the fathers are responsible in scripture but what, how their kids turn out. Let's move on. We've got just a few minutes. Then we've got Abinadab's sons. Abinadab was the guy where the Ark of the Covenant remained for approximately 70 years after it was returned from the Philistines. It never went back to Moses' tabernacle. It stayed in the house of Abinadab. The name Abinadab means the one who was willing. And we read that God blessed the house of Abinadab. 1 Samuel, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. It's about there anyway. But it seems, we don't know anything about one of Abinadab's sons, it doesn't even mention him, that's Eliezer, but Uzzah, it appears, got familiar with the things of God. And he began to get sort of, you know, there's certain tones of people, you know, true, we're called to be intimate with the Lord, true, we're called to love him as our, as our saviour, true, you know, we don't want to get into a lot of religious jargon, but there's a, there's a reverence that we should never ever lose. Jesus, the Son of God, always feared his Father. And some of the songs that, you know, you know, as if Jesus was my mate and we're having a great time together and, you know, you know well, yeah, that's a truth perverted, in my opinion, when he gets that far. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, Jesus, how you doing today? I don't think you can ever talk to him like that. And something went wrong in Uzzah because you know, he, I'm after all, he lived with the ark for all his life and he was the expert. You know, I've, you know, all you guys get excited about the ark, but I mean, I've seen these things all my life. When I was three, you know, and, and people talk that way. You know, when I was three, you know, I saw things happen in my home, and, you know, but it's made me sort of kind of familiar in a wrong way with the things of God so that they haven't the value they should have anymore. So he puts out his hand to steady the ark. They're already doing it the wrong way, but because they'd had a whole generation where they'd never ever lived close to God, God allowed them a lot of leeway and he did never judge the Philistines for doing it wrong because they didn't know any better. But when Uzzah said, come on, let's steady, no, he says, come on, let's get this ark. It's only just a lump of wood with a few old uh, relics in it, you know, keep it, he dropped dead. When you read about what happened to the men of Beth Shemesh, you think, how could Uzzah do such a thing? So let's make sure that in none of us there's a trace of the Uzzah spirit because we happen to be the beneficiaries of living in a house where God's been, or going to a church where the power of God's been around for a long time. Right, let's move on. Then there were those who failed amongst the spiritual sons. There's Eli, Elisha to Gehazi, we've already talked about that. There's Elisha to Joas, we've already talked about that. There's these people in the New Testament, Paul to Demas, we're told of Demas that he loved this present world. When the chips were down, he was more after the world than he was after God. And so in the end, he, he, he left. Paul to Alexander, that's a very tragic thing. Alexander was a courageous, fiery young man. He had the potential of becoming a great evangelist, but, but the very gift of evangelism, the very boldness of the evangelist, the very willingness to sort of speak out in hostile situations, that very boldness can be a trap to you when you start dealing with people who have authority over you in the spirit, because you can treat them the same way. So when the, the riots about the breakout in the, in, the, in the amphitheater in Ephesus, he's prepared to go and risk his life and preach the gospel for Jesus. He's bold, he's courageous, he's got a great gift, but he's undisciplined. He's like a wild horse that nobody can put the bridle on. 
He's a strong horse, and oh, if only he could be bridled and brought into line and made to run with the other horses, what tremendous things he would accomplish for God. I tell you, I meet people like that almost every other month. But no one can ever put the bridle on. No one say, whoa, wait up, get in line. Come, oh, don't you tell me what to do. I just listen to God. I'm a prophet with a mighty anointing. I'm an evangelist with a mighty anointing. Brother, if you go on your own much longer, the devil's going to get you. Paul said, he, I mean, I haven't time to go into it all, but you read the scriptures, every mention. Alexander was the brother of Rufus. He was the son of Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross. Rufus and his mother, Paul, was so precious to them, and he was, he, he was, he, they were so precious to him. That great family, Simon, it seems like, he, he, he was one of the early martyrs. Uh, I can't go into all the detail of these things, but his dad had died for Jesus. His mum and his brother were doing great. But this cocky, this arrogant young man wouldn't come into the bridle of being disciplined by an apostolic father who wanted to make his ministry work successfully. So Paul has to say this of him. He says, he stoutly resisted my words. He, he teamed up with, again, a, a guy called Hymenius, and the two of them hatched out some new doctrines. Sold a lot of books teaching these new doctrines, but it was erroneous. Made a big name for himself. Made a lot of money. You see, he stoutly resisted that. This wise counseling father, when he tried to say, look, look, Alexander, look, son, I want to bring you into life. I want to bring correction before you make shipwreck of your faith. But he wouldn't listen. He stoutly resisted our words. He made shipwreck of his faith. And then it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, he ended up doing Paul much harm. Paul had to deliver him to Satan that he might learn not to blaspheme. He ended up a wreck. As I'm speaking, I can think of some people who fit this picture exactly, and I'm sure many of you can. Oh God, help the Alexanders to submit to authority and to get under a father that's going to keep them from ending up in error and deception and making a complete mess of their lives in Jesus' name. Finally, we come to Diotrephes, who was a pain in the neck to John. Third John. Just go there, we're going to close. Have a break. Third John. Little tiny letter. Come to verse 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius, on the other hand, has a good testimony. So this guy, Diotrephes, has sort of taken over the church and said, this is my church and I'm in charge and, and I don't want this poor guy coming in because he doesn't, doesn't join me in this self-exalting robe that I'm on. And so he made a mess of himself. I'm sorry, this... Amen? So let's just close this with prayer. Let's just pray. Father, I want to pray that as fathers, those of us who've been called and functionally are already doing the job of a father, you'll give us great ability to select the sons and give them the time that they need to bring them to the fullness of what you've called them to be and do. At the same time, Lord, we ask, Lord, for those amongst us who are sons and those that we know who are spiritual sons, that, Lord, they will not fail to come into their inheritance and take that inheritance on to the next and to the next generation. And I pray for spiritual mothers who've got such a great role to pray, that, and, and for natural mothers, that in their family they may be a mighty power for passion for God and for his purpose. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who are busy with ministry, that we won't allow that ministry to be an excuse to neglect our responsibilities as fathers. Lord, may these practical truths that we've considered for a few minutes, may they, they burn in our hearts. 
and become the reality of our lives. In Jesus' mighty name. We thank you for the model of Paul and Timothy. And Lord, we pray that every relationship that's represented here may come into the excellence and the beauty of that relationship. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you.